The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Simon Lack. Uh, he is an investment professional. He's just come out with a book called Bonds Are Not Forever, The Crisis Facing Fixed Income Investors. Welcome to the Money Answer Show, Simon. Thank you, Jordan. Good to be on the show. Tell us a little bit about your background for people who haven't heard of you before and, and what led you to r- write this particular book about the bond market. Sure. So I spent uh, my career in finance, most of my years at J.P. Morgan. Um, so I ran interest rate derivatives trading. So I'm really a bond guy by background. So uh, I was in that business uh, through the 80s and 90s. And, uh, and then in the last 10 years, so I ran a hedge fund business where I invested in hedge funds at J.P. Morgan. And so... Uh, I did that up until about five years ago, and then I left and I set up my own investment firm where I, I manage money, uh, looking for ways to invest uh, free of the tyranny of low interest rates in the bond market. And your firm is called SLAdvisors.com, right? Yes, SL Advisors LLC, and, and the website is SL-Advisors.com, yes. And tell me, what kind of investors do you work with, individuals or institutions or some combination of the two? Uh, a combination of the two. I mean, when we first started, you know, a lot of the clients uh, came on that were individuals. And I like to think that all of our clients are friends of mine, but a lot of the early clients were friends first before they became clients. Um, but, you know, increasingly now we're taking on institutions. And, and, you know, we really focus on income generating strategies without using fixed income. And so that's really what the thrust of our business is, is looking for ways to generate investment income uh, in the face of very low interest rates. So in the beginning of your book, you talk about uh, from high school to Wall Street, the bull market begins. Kind of give us the, the, uh, the history of what's happened in the last 30 years. It's probably been one of the greatest bull markets and bonds ever in history. Kind of tell us kind of what led up to that and why it's been such a good market for such a long time. Well, you know what uh, occurred to me as I was researching the book? Was there, there's been three really big trends over the last 30 years. And, and my career, you know, I started work back in, in 1980. The first is we've had this secular fall in interest rates and in inflation from 1980. The second is we've had a huge increase in indebtedness both at the public sector level, you know, federal and also states in many cases, but also uh, households, you know, saving rates have been coming down. And the third big trend has been a growth in financial services as a percentage of GDP or as a percentage of the economy. Banking and Wall Street are now a bigger part of the economy than they were 30 years ago. And these three trends, I think, have all fed off one another. So falling interest rates, you know, created a huge bull market in bonds, you know, a secular bull market really for 30 years. And that also created more product to be traded and more opportunities for financial services companies and for Wall Street to be moving securities around and making money and charging fees for all of that. And I think all these trends are starting to swing back the other way. Clearly, interest rates have bottomed over the last, whatever, six to 12 months. Um, 
indebtedness, I think, for the U.S. is probably close to peaking in terms of a sustainable level. It may intend to increase. And financial services, as a size of the economy, is also swinging back. You know, you see a real sort of popular shift against banks. I mean, my, my old company, J.P. Morgan, seems to get hit with a huge fine, it seems like, every month or so. And so I think all those things are swinging back. And, and one of the consequences of that is going to be that interest rates, in, in my view, won't keep up with inflation. So although we're negative on bonds, it doesn't mean we think that bonds are going to crash and interest rates are going to shoot higher. We just think that the current policy of keeping interest rates very low is a successful one in terms of reducing the amount of debt that's, that's owed, in terms of really hurting the savers and helping the borrowers because it's too much debt that got us where we are. And we think that's going to continue. So we think interest rates will be kept at unattractively low levels because it's a strategy that works. And that's to the benefit of borrowers, but to, the, to really harm savers. And so savers, I think, are supposed to look for other ways to invest their money. So looking back, had I told you in 1980 that the federal deficit is going to go from, whatever it was then, $2 trillion to $17 trillion, um, and interest rates are going to plummet from... 20% on prime rate to 3%, and long treasuries are going to go from 14% down to 2.5% while the deficit is exploding. Would that have made sense to you at that time? No, no, not at all. You wouldn't have thought those things could happen all at the same time. And, uh, you know, there's been periods in history, of course, when, it, when they haven't gone together. I mean, under Clinton, uh, you know, the deficit came down and that brought rates down. But then, of course, uh, in, in recent years, the deficit has gone up, even while rates have continued to come down. So the relationship between interest rates and the level of debt is quite unclear. But what is clear is that in the U.S., periods of very high debt have been followed by periods of low or negative real interest rates, which is to say interest rates after inflation. And if you're a bond investor... That's what you really care about. Is you care about the, the rate of return above inflation because inflation is basically the tax that you know that eats away the value of your savings. And you know, in the nineteen, in the late forties and nineteen fifties, we went through a period of you know financial repression similar to what we have now, when with all of the debt after World War II, uh, the Treasury and the Federal Reserve actually had an explicit agreement to keep rates low as a way of gradually reducing the real value or the inflation-adjusted value of that debt over the next several years, and it was a good policy and it worked. And although there's no formal agreement to do that today, the practical result is we have something very similar, and that's sort of what we're living through, uh, that's what we're living through now. So in the 80s, when the deficit started rising, uh, people were complaining and so on, but others said, I think Reagan at one time said, or I'm not sure, one of his officials said, Debt, deficits don't matter, basically, the debt doesn't matter. Here are interest rates falling sharply in the 80s, the deficit's going up, nothing close to what it is today, but it was going up. So is that true? Deficits and debt doesn't really matter as far as level of interest rates? They, they clearly matter, but it's a complicated relationship. You know, one of Reagan's great, great quotes was that the, the deficit's big enough to look after itself, which is, uh, <laughs> I guess, a good commentary on how much attention he paid to it. I think there's a clear relationship between real interest rates and the amount of debt. And frankly, when we run a lot of debt, it, it requires high real interest rates in order to absorb that debt, in order to, to have it you know, marketed or held by private investors. And today, because we have so much debt, the Federal Reserve is having to obviously buy a lot of it in order to keep real interest rates low or negative 
compared with what they would be otherwise. And so it's that connection between real rates and debt that I think is clearer than the one between nominal rates and debt. The other thing is that when there's a lot of debt, it creates a greater risk of inflation down the road. Clearly, if you, you know, and, and there's a lot of history um, going back over several hundred years of governments inflating their way out of you know, very highly indebted situations. And inflation today in the United States is low, and you know, there's no indication that it's going to go up in the near term. But I would say that a little bit higher inflation would help a lot more people than it would hurt. Um, you know, anybody with a, that owns a home with a, with a fixed-rate mortgage would probably be better off with 3% inflation rather than 2 So I don't think there'd be huge political opposition to a little bit of a pickup in inflation. You know, not 10%, but if it was up another 1%. So you've always got that risk as well if you're, if you're a bond investor, you know, where inflation obviously is not what you want. So inflation officially now is 1.5% or thereabouts. Uh, do you think that's an accurate prescription? Because I, what I see in the real world, uh, health insurance premiums are going up more than 1.5%. Right. Taxes, um, food, uh, gasoline, uh, clothing, uh, rents, all kinds of things, uh, tuitions at colleges. I mean, these are going up way, way more than 2% or so. So maybe other things are going down, but it just seems unrealistically low compared to the real-life experience of most people these days. Yeah, a lot of people feel that. And, and, you know, and I spent some time researching that. And, and the first thing is that um, you've got to understand what inflation is seeking to measure. It's not trying to measure the cost of maintaining a constant standard of living. That's an important point because they take out the quality improvements. So, you know, if you look over many, many decades in the United States, Living standards have gone up every year. So let's just say you had the average standard of living and you, and you were to say, well, what will it cost me? What do I need to increase my income at to maintain the average standard of living in 10 years? It's not the inflation rate. You actually need to grow it at the, value, at the, at the growth rate of uh, nominal, per capita, nominal per capita GDP. So inflation is built around this concept of a basket of goods and services of constant utility, having the same sort of constant use. And without getting into the technical details, it's done that way for very good reasons because it's easier to measure. But it means that keeping up with inflation is not necessarily going to keep you with the same standard of living as your neighbors. Now, within that, there are some weird things in how the inflation numbers are calculated. And one of the biggest components is housing because that's one of the biggest components of most household budgets. And they have this thing called owner's equivalent rent. So for most of us, the cost of housing is the cost of owning a home because around two-thirds of Americans live in a home that they own. And so you'd think that the inflation statistics would include the cost of owning a home, including property taxes and insurance and mortgage rates and all the other things that go into that. But the statisticians would argue that, in fact, a home is an asset, and what they're trying to measure is the cost of shelter. And a home gives you shelter, but it's, it's separate from the asset. So they do this thing. They, they basically do a survey, and they survey households and say, what would you rent your home for if you could rent it? And it's sort of a weird concept because, you know, unless you live in an apartment building, you don't really think about what homes rent for. I mean, none of us no. to, We don't go to cocktail parties and say, you know, I see that the owner's equivalent rent for our neighborhood went up 2% last month <laughs> because we don't know, right? But that's, that's a very big component. That's, that's almost a third of the, of the CPI. And so as you dig into how the numbers are calculated, you, you get the feeling that 
it's well-intentioned. There's no conspiracy. I mean, there are people who think there's a conspiracy to keep the inflation numbers artificially low. And I don't believe that because I don't think the government could actually do that without us all knowing. There's thousands of statisticians and people at the Bureau of Labor uh, who, are, who are doing this. But what's happening is the people who've constructed the inflation numbers are measuring something but they're not measuring what we think they're measuring. It's almost like we're talking past one another. So the statisticians are doing what statisticians believe makes sense, and the rest of us are using the numbers in a way that we make sense. But, but in the real, the real world, people's expenses are going up faster than 1.5%, right? A lot of people feel that, you know, and there's, there's uh, answers to that. You know, uh, for example, um, infrequent purchases, things like, uh, you know, computers and TVs, have come down in price, and whereas things that we buy every day, you know, like gasoline or or movie tickets, you know, there's a frequency issue where you know you're probably buying something that's gone up in price because movie tickets are something that you buy probably more frequently than you buy a TV, and so there's that there's that sort of issue which you know quite properly statistician will adjust for that, but I also think there's some weird things in how they measure. And here's one of my favorite examples: so they adjust for quality improvements in the statistics because they want to take out improvements of quality and just hold things constant. And so you get this weird outcome where if you buy an iPad and it's 500 bucks, and last year's iPad was 500 bucks when it was sold, but this year's is a better iPad. It's faster and it does all kinds of things more than the other one could. Because the price didn't change but it's a better iPad, it will show up as a price decrease in mm-hmm. the statistics because you've got more iPad for your money. Now, you, can't, you don't have any money left over. It still costs you $500, but you get more utility. So again, it's quite logical for a statistician, but for you and me, we'd say that, hey, iPads didn't go down in price. That's not a price decrease. It's the same cost. No, you got more utility. That counts the same as a price decrease. So, so there's some sort of subtle features in, in how it's calculated that basically mean that as a user of inflation statistics, they're not measuring something that's really all that useful to you, in my opinion. Right. <laughs> okay. Very good. All right. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Simon Lack. He's the author of a new book called Bonds Are Not Forever, The Crisis Facing Fixed Income Investors. We'll be back after this. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. If you want to know about investing in emerging and frontier markets, or if you have experience in this field but still need to know more, tune in to Emerging and Frontier Markets Investing with Gavin Graham. Gavin explores news, current trends, and insights about both categories of investing. His guest experts, along with his own knowledge, will help you stay above the line when it comes to growth potential, whether in funds or equities. He will look at what to invest in and avoid. Tune in to Emerging and Frontier Markets Investing with Gavin Graham every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Do you know that over 70% of Americans with severe disabilities are unemployed? Are you one of the 2.5 million Americans with epilepsy? If you are or know someone struggling with these issues, tune in to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. 
On the show, Joyce will discuss these issues as well as others. She will have a nationally known guest that will offer helpful insight on disability matters and let you, the listener, call in with your questions and concerns. So if you struggle with a disability or know someone who does, listen to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. Heard every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time here on voiceamerica.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Simon Lack. Uh, he's an investment uh, expert. He was at J.P. Morgan for many years. He's come out with a new book called Bonds Are Not Forever, The Crisis Facing Fixed Income Investors. To find out more about him and his firm, it's sl-advisors, with an O, advisors.com. Welcome back to the show, Simon. Thank you. Thank you, George. So you have a, a whole chapter, what you call a brief history of debt. Now, we can't go, go through all the details, but what can we learn from what happened over the Roman times and the British Empire and all these things that you go into here that apply to our current situation? As you say, we have rising debt around the world and yet low in, inflation. What can we learn from all of the history you talk about here that applies to today's situation? Yeah, I mean, well, it's fascinating to look back in history at, at, at how, you know, how long we've had uh, interest rates. And you can go back to, you know, uh, really three, 4,000 years. But in terms of what we learn, um, there's an amazingly high uh, number of instances of governments defaulting on debt or using inflation as a sort of a slow default on their debt. And uh, in the context of, you know, the last 500 years, it's amazingly common. I mean, you know, France, for example, in the, I think, the 17th century defaulted about four times. Um, you know, Greece has spent uh, almost half the time since independence in default. And, you know, for people were, of course, shocked by uh, Greece, and they did default in all but name in, uh, a couple of years ago in the Euro crisis. But in a historical context, that shouldn't have been at all surprising because, they, you know, like I say, half the time since they gained independence from Turkey, they'd been in default. So there's uh, an enormously high number of, of examples of governments using default or inflation or both to reduce the amount of debt that they have outstanding. And in most cases, it was uh, an utter shock and a complete surprise to the contemporary participants but that's what's happened many times because it's often the least painful way out of a tough situation. So let's take it to today. So that some of the most recent examples we've had of default were Detroit and um, so Sacramento or someplace in California and then Cyprus. As you say, Greece was kind of an implicit Greece. default. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Argentina. Argentina, yeah. Puerto Rico seems to be kind of on that Puerto edge Rico, to some extent. Possibly, possibly. So, so what is a bond investor to do about this? Do bond investors get wiped out when these things happen for the most part? Well, I think as a bond investor, first of all, you've got to reckon on that as a risk. And then, as with any investment, you have to decide, am I getting compensated for the risk of that? And so um, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't invest in bonds, but you should ask yourself, am I, is the return sort of enough to justify that? And, you know, since 2008, Bond yields have really been maintained at levels that, in my judgment, don't compensate an investor 
for the risk that they're taking. Uh, and it's not that I think the U.S. is going to default. Obviously, that, you know, that would be not a serious statement to say that. But I do think that the U.S. is going to maintain interest rates that don't compensate investors for inflation. And that's a form of, that's a form of sort of stealth default, according to some commentators. You know, if after taxes and inflation, you invest in U.S. government debt and you have less in purchasing power left than you started with, then that's a form of, you know, you're actually getting back less in, in, in real terms than, than what you, you put in. Well, if that's true, though, why do so many people do it? I mean, treasury auctions go extremely well. People are pouring money into treasuries, even though interest rates are, are way below what you say, you're falling behind. Yeah, there's a lot of reasons. I mean, a lot of the investors are foreign central banks. I mean, between the Bank of China and the Bank of Japan, they're huge investors. People are, are scared, although obviously equities have been very strong, and I think that that's uh, certainly done something to alleviate a lot of the fear that was out there. But, you know, we had this sort of near-death financial experience, and for a long time, people were, of course, very scared about equities and so just wanted to know their money was safe. Um, so I think, those are, I think those are the main reasons. But, you know, public policy has been to make that really unattractive. And I always sort of think, you know, that if Ben Bernanke, of course, outgoing Fed chairman, but, you know, if he, if he could be asked, what do you think of bonds as an investment here? He would say, look, you know, not with my money. He'd say, you know, the, the Federal Reserve doesn't need to make a profit on its bond investments. In fact, you could even say that if the Federal Reserve was to lose money on its bond investments, that might actually be a sign that, you know, their strategy's been successful because they've caused the economy to pick up and rates to move up. So anybody who's a bond investor today is actually competing with the government in buying bonds. And so it, that, that's never, you know, never going to be a good, good place to be, I don't think. So are you saying that today it does not make sense to buy higher yield junk bonds because you're not being, the, the yields have come down so much that you're not being compensated adequately for the risk of default there? Well, junk bonds are a little different. I would say that government bonds, municipal bonds, and high-grade bonds are going to be very disappointing investments. I mean, I don't think you'll, you know, you won't lose 25%. I think you'll probably find that, you know, after taxes and inflation, or in the case of munis, obviously, just after inflation, you'll wind up earning uh, probably zero. And so, you know, it won't have really got you anywhere. In terms of high-yield, you know, high-yield bonds... Uh, uh, have a, an element of equity market risk in them. I mean, you know, generally if high-yield bonds do well, equities have done well also. And so I think there are things you can do. For example, there's a, an asset class called Master Limited Partnerships, which are energy infrastructure businesses, which are equities that yield the same as high-yield bonds generally, but have much better return prospects because they pay dividends and the dividends grow. So I think that uh, anybody who owns junk bonds should own MLPs instead. So you know, there's, there's a, an equity substitute for almost any fixed income asset that you could point to today. So, Would you have uh, one or two favorite MLPs that you would uh, recommend, you'd like for the long term? Yeah, we, like, uh, we actually like Kinder Morgan Inc. KMI, um, which is the C Corp that gen owns the general partner in Kinder Morgan Partners and, uh, and El Paso. Uh, that's one of our favorite names. Um, that's down uh, recently as well, so it's uh, you know it's a little bit more attractive investment. We like uh, Williams, uh, WMB, uh, Williams Companies. Uh, we like Plains All America. So those are you know uh, two or three of our biggest holdings. So you know they're all big stable companies. 
you know, they generate reliable cash flow. They're in the business of energy infrastructure. So they, they run the sort of the plumbing of, the, of, of how energy gets uh, found and, and, and processed and transported and stored around the United States. And, and it's actually a great way to invest in the shale revolution and the development of uh, shale oil and, and, and natural gas and natural gas liquids in, in uh, the Bakken in North Dakota and in, in the Marcellus Shale and the, in Pennsylvania and farther south. Um, it's a great way to invest in, in, in the development of that resource because we know it'll have to be uh, gathered and processed and, and moved and stored and refined. And the companies that do that will see a lot more money flowing into their businesses. You have a section here in your book about student debt. Uh, talk about defaults. I mean, how big a problem is student debt? And are there going to be a lot of defaults? I mean, people technically aren't allowed to default on student loans. But what, what is the outcome? A lot of, uh, more, well, they're not mortgage-backed, student loan-backed securities are out there. What is your outlook as to what's going to happen with student loan debt? Well, I think it's a huge moral failure. I mean, it's about a trillion dollars. It's about a trillion dollars of student debt. And it, uh, as you say, Jordan, it's extraordinarily hard to default on student debt. You know, you can file for personal bankruptcy and yet your student debt uh, will not be forgiven. You, you pretty much have to die or have extreme hardship to get out of it. So it's very hard to default on that. I think there's a huge failing here by, you know, a, a, a large number of, of colleges and, and, and advanced education institutions in that, you know, people at an age when they were not even young enough to drink have been allowed to take on, you know, fairly large amounts of debt without really looking at what's the, you know, what's the likely path to paying this off. And it's a well-intentioned policy to make student debt uh, almost impossible to default on. It makes a lot of it available because it's a low-risk loan for a bank or institution to make. But it means that people are saddled with probably more debt than was prudent to take on. So how will that be resolved? I don't know. I would imagine that... Um, at some point, the federal government will have to uh, uh, forgive some of that because there'll be cases where, you know, I mean, we all can find people who've, you know, taken on debt for a degree that doesn't give them anything like the earnings power that's necessary to really pay down that debt in a reasonable period of time. And I think that, uh, you know, we shouldn't have got there. You know, uh, college education is a wonderful goal for everybody. But it, what's happened is it's allowed... One of the reasons why... The cost of uh, college tuition has gone up so fast is because it's been so easy for students to borrow money to pay for it. And so this is where the colleges, I think, truly are at fault. And I think it's a big moral failing on their part that they haven't been much more disciplined about controlling the, you know, the costs of, of, of the entities that they run. So will investors be hurt if uh, this is allowed to default to some extent, or who would take the hit on that? Well, ultimately, the U.S. taxpayer. So uh, I, I would not, doubt not holders of, of student-backed loans, Sally May bonds and things like that. They wouldn't be have the default. No, I would think the federal government will will guarantee those. So I don't think that the investors would be hurt. But I think it'll become a general obligation. So there'll be some debt forgiveness. I'm not saying a trillion dollars will be written off, but I think that uh, over time it will become a bigger and bigger political issue. And more and more people will say, "Hey, look, you know, I was 19 and 20 when I was taking this debt on. What did I know?" You know, I was talked into it by the school. You know, how come schools don't sit down and say, look, if you take this degree in philosophy, let me show you what philosophy graduates earn and, you know, how many years it might take you if you get a job as a philosopher, assuming you even can, how, how long it'll take you to pay that down. And there's, you know, schools very rarely do that sort of cost-benefit analysis 
because they're in the business of getting people to buy an education. And so I think that there'll be cases where there's uh, some sort of debt forgiveness. I don't know so, what percentage of that trillion dollars it'll be. So will this be I like a the, bailout, basically? This is, I mean, we had the same thing with the mortgage market, and there was a bailout of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Would there be kind of a bailout of the student loan business to some extent? I think so. I think there will be, yeah. I think there will be for, you know, for people who basically uh, you know, have got debt that they can't get out from under because they don't have the earnings capability to pay that down. Yeah, I think there will be. I think you will see that. Wow, pretty, pretty amazing stuff. Yeah. All right, we're going to take another break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Simon Lack. Uh, he's the author of a book called Bonds Are Not Forever, The Crisis Facing Fixed Income Investors. Website to find out more about the book and his services is sl-advisors.com. We'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. In sales, are you a lion or a vulture? Lions don't wait. They just go for it. Vultures hang around until the lions are finished and just pick up the scraps. How can you set yourself apart as a lion? Join the other aspiring sales lions and listen to Forget Patience, Let's Sell Something with host Ty Maynard. You'll learn the tips and strategies of top sales professionals. You'll gain more clients at a faster rate and at higher margins. If you're a sales professional, business owner, or executive, listen in every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Is your business model robust enough? In today's ever-changing business environment, people are working to transform themselves, their futures, and their business. Tune in to Business Reinvention with your host, Nancy Lynn. To stay ahead of the game in business, you have to constantly reinvent yourself and your organization. With Nancy's experience and that of her guest experts, you'll learn from stories of inspiration, innovation, and forward thinking. Listen for Business Reinvention, live every Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Business Channel. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Simon Lack, uh, formerly with J.P. Morgan, has written a book called Bonds Are Not Forever, The Crisis Facing Fixed Income Investors. Welcome back to the show, Simon. Thank you, Jordan. So you're saying that most bonds are not going to be a great deal going forward because uh, after inflation and taxes, you're pretty much going to be no gain at all. Right. You have a chapter at the end of the book called Bonds Are Not Forever, putting it all together, and you talk about various ways to in effect, create your own bond, as you put it. So let's go through some of those uh, ways of how that might work. One of them is what you call high dividend, low beta stocks. What, what are some ways of figuring that out and maybe some examples of stocks that would 
give you the equivalent of a bond that's going to do better than bonds. Sure. So the first thing is, you know, there's this simple math example of you could have $100 in 10-year treasuries, which yield around 2.7%, and you'll get what you get in 10 years if you hold to maturity. And call that option one. And option two is you sell those treasuries and you put $25 in the, in the stock market, which yields around 2%. But dividends grow. Obviously, the interest you earn on a bond won't. And only $25 in the Standard Poor's 500 with 5% dividend growth will get you the same place in 10 years as the $100 invested in, in treasury securities. So you can really have $25 in stocks and $75 in money market or in cash or treasury bills and that will be sort of a synthetic bond. And it's, it, it, it illustrates the fact that you only need a quarter of the money to give you, you know, a prospect of earning the same return shows you how expensive fixed income is relative to equity. So, you know, in terms of some of the strategies, um, we touched on master limited partnerships a little bit already, but we think of that as a pretty good high-yield bond substitute. Um, we have another strategy we run, which is called a hedge dividend capture strategy. And so what that does is that's a high-grade, that's an investment-grade bond substitute. So we invest in, in really stable dividend-paying stocks, and lots of people will tell you, oh, you know, yes, invest in dividend-yielding stocks for income and so on. But the problem is you get equity market risk with that, right? Stocks can go down, and, and, and so, you know, it won't look like a bond when it, when it goes down 10 or 15%. But what we do is we combine that with an equity market hedge. And so it takes out the the day-to-day fluctuations in the equity market, but it still gives you exposure to dividends because there's, there's more dividend income on the portfolio than the cost of running the hedge. And it also gives you exposure to dividend growth and the fact that dividends grow over time. And it turns out that um, the kinds of sort of low-volatility, stable companies that make sense for a portfolio like that tend to be widely owned but not widely owned by active managers because... You know, active managers tend to own things that are going to go up at least as much as the market because they want to do better than the market. You don't often find anybody on, you know, on cable TV saying, oh, you've got to buy Johnson & Johnson or Procter & Gamble, uh, you know, or McDonald's or any of those names. But over, you know, over time, they grind it out. You know, they, they make more money generally one quarter after the next. They grow their dividends reliably. You know, they return cash to investors. And... Um, for the long-term investor, you know, that's a good place to be. So, so that's, the, that's a strategy that, you know, anybody that has high-grade bonds, we'd say, look, we think there's a strategy that's, you know, probably about a 6% annual return, uh, and, it, and it's uncorrelated with, with stocks or bonds, and it's a great substitute for that. Talk about the hedge a little bit. Are you buying put options, or how are you hedging the equity risk in that we, portfolio? We go short the, uh, the S&P 500, so we actually short the Spider ETF, so it's highly liquid, um, and we structure it to basically take out the equity market exposure for the long portfolio. So if, if the stock market goes down, your short position will go up to offset the losses, is what yeah, you're saying? The idea is that the short position will, yes, in a falling market, the short position will make money to offset you know, what you lose on the losses, yeah, on, on the long side. Another strategy you talk about is deep value equities. So those are deep value stocks that have high dividends, I guess. How do you find some good ones there? Yeah, so we invest in stocks that uh, are out of favor, uh, that we, that we, where we believe we understand the business uh, without a lot of debt. You know, we generally avoid companies with debt everywhere because, you know, debt is really what caused so many of the problems that we had in 2008. Um, so we avoid leverage, we avoid too much debt. Um, and so companies that are, you know, 
we think attractive or out of, out of favor. So in that strategy, for example, we own Hertz, um, you know, the car rental company, which we think has uh, some very attractive industry dynamics. You know, there's uh, real consolidation in that industry. Companies are able to raise prices much more readily than they could before. You know, I was just, uh, I rented a car down in Florida in January, and I couldn't believe how much the price had gone up compared with being there in uh, November, just a couple of months earlier. Um, we own Kinder Morgan in that strategy as well. Uh, we own some big companies like we'll own IBM and Berkshire, for example. Um, we own ADT recently. We invested in ADT, which is the alarm company. So it's fairly eclectic. You know, it's, it's uh, what the companies have in common is that they, they sort of fit into our definition of a deep value stock, but we, we don't have a strong bias towards one particular industry or sector or anything like that. They're deep value in that the prices may have fallen because they're out of favor, but they're still paying dividends and maybe even raising their dividends. Is that right? Uh, you know what? In that strategy, they don't all have to be paying a dividend, but they're, they're all profitable, and, and typically we think their profits are going to be increasing. So you know, none of them are companies that we think will go bankrupt. Um, they may be going through a tough time. Uh, they may be poorly understood. There may be some sort of short-term issue that's challenging them. And, and so, uh, you know, so we, we think there'll be money good, but maybe you've got to wait you know, a year before things right themselves. How about uh, foreign bonds? There's been a lot of speculation that uh, emerging markets are going to run into a lot of trouble. We've had very big controversies recently in Argentina and Turkey and Indonesia and other places. Uh, what, what is your view on foreign bonds as a way of getting higher? Because the yields are higher. Well, you know, risk too much. in terms of emerging market exposure generally, I mean, in America, we're fortunate in that, you know, we've got the biggest, most liquid capital market in the world. And we get all of our emerging markets exposure, all of our international exposure through the American companies we invest in. And, you know, you could look at any presentation from a Fortune 500 company and you'll see that they have an emerging market strategy. So to my mind, instead of trying to figure out, you know, which company in Brazil I should pick and how much money to invest in Brazil, why not let Coca-Cola decide how much capital to allocate to Brazil and then you get exposure to Brazilian growth through the filter of American gap accounting, through American corporate governance and disclosure requirements in a, in a much safer way than worrying about, you know, what a Brazilian or Chinese or Russian disclosure requirements like and, and ownership rights and so on. So um, we don't think you need to directly invest in any non-U.S. securities. American companies are, uh, you know, the biggest companies in the United States are global anyway. They may happen to be listed here and be U.S. taxpayers, but they're doing business all over the world. You can get your global exposure right here in America. And how about sovereign debt, buying the bonds of China, Japan, Argentina, Cyprus, <laughs> any of these places. Is that a better way to go? I mean, it's, a, it's really credit analysis, isn't it? So, um, I don't know. Those things, are, we don't do that. Obviously, there's money to be made and lost there. A lot of times, there's a political judgment in terms of, you know, uh, Ukraine is probably, uh, 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 you know, an interesting uh, opportunity to look at, although I certainly wouldn't invest in Ukraine myself. But Certainly, they're approaching crisis point with what's going on there, and, and I know they they, they they said they need, uh, I think, over thirty billion dollars of, uh, of international aid. Um, so those are those are high risk opportunities. I think generally, see, the problem is that bonds are much less liquid than than stocks as well, and much less price transparency. So 
you know, you pay much higher transaction costs to get in and out of bonds as well. So, uh, you know, it may look like an attractive yield, but if you're wrong and you decide you want to get out, you know, you may find that not only have you lost 20%, but it costs you another 2 or 3% to actually find a bid. You have a chapter in your book about bond market inefficiencies for retail. When does it make sense to buy individual bonds for retail, considering the spreads, versus doing it through a either open or closed-end fund or ETF or something like that? Well, I think that uh, if an investor wants to buy municipal bonds or government bonds, the best way to do it is through an auction. Government bonds are a liquid market. Municipal bonds are, are very bad. You know, investors routinely are getting ripped off by brokers in municipal bonds. I mean, the SEC even has a website that explains that. And the reason is it's very hard for investors to check pricing and can get, you know, to get comparative pricing. If you buy something in an, in an auction, then at least you know you're getting the same yield as everybody else, and so that's a fair deal. But if you buy something that's a, in a secondary market, that's a, in, you know, supposedly a seasoned issue, you really don't know where the market is. It's hard to call three or four different brokers and get competing quotes and so on. So for corporate bonds, you know, $100,000 is sort of minimum market size. So unless you're going to build a portfolio with $100,000 investments, and, and, you know, you're probably going to want to have, you know, 20 or 30 bonds to have some diversification. So unless you're going to have 2 or $3 million invested in corporate bonds, I would not buy individual bonds. You know, I would only do it through, uh, through an ETF. I mean, there are some ETFs that will, a lot of ETFs, that, which, are, which are great products, very liquid and they'll give you exposure to whichever sector you're interested in. And I think that's for the, for the retail investor, that's often going to be a much better way to go. What would be some of your favorite ETFs uh, in these areas, in municipals and uh, corporates and high yield uh, that, that you would like? I mean, uh, you know, for high-grade corporate bonds, LQD uh, gives you, you know, broadly diversified high-grade corporate bonds. And, you know, a lot of the, the brokers prefer to sell you the individual bonds because they can mark them up more. You know, they can make much more profit selling you bonds than where ETFs, you know, you can pay $9 a commission and you'll get the pricing on the underlying bonds that, that a wholesaler gets, you know, that a big institution gets where they have a big price advantage. So, um, but, you know, we don't do a lot of that. You know, in, in our business, everything we do is in public equities. Uh, we don't invest in bonds at all. My money is completely invested in what we do. And, 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 you know, we believe that an investor can achieve all of their objectives, income generation, you know, stable source of returns and exposure to growth, all with U.S. public equities, you know, by picking the right asset class, by, by having a couple of long short strategies as well as long only. And I think that, um, you know, there's so many companies who've got a, you know, a bond business who need you to keep coming back to the bond market. But it seems to me that if the outlook for bonds is so poor, just stay away from the entire asset class and wait until there's a better time. And what would make that better time? When would that, when, when interest rates are up and they have more uh, capital gains potential? Yeah, when would... I mean, I would say, take 10-year treasury notes as an example, because that's a benchmark for so many different securities. I think that you know, if you've got a long-term inflation outlook of 2%, I think a 2% return on top of that, so about a 4% yield on 10-year treasuries, that is probably the lowest yield that I'd consider uh, investing at all. And I think that, uh, you know, given the outlook, you probably want to have a little bit of margin for safety there. Maybe inflation will average a little bit more than 2 You know, there is a lot of debt. So I think, you know, 10-year notes, you know, 5 6%. Then I'd start to say, assuming inflation was well-behaved and was close to two, 
then I'd be inclined to say, yeah, I think this is an attractive level to be invested at, and so let's sort of reconsider. Obviously, we're a long way from that. We may not get there. We may not, we may not get there for a long time. But as, a, as, a, as an investor, I don't really see anything attractive in fixed income until you see that kind of yield in uh, treasuries. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Simon Lack. Uh, his book is called Bonds Are Not Forever, The Crisis Facing Fixed Income Investors. Our website to find out more about him is sl-advisors.com. We'll be back after this. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Are you looking for innovative ideas on how to achieve your financial dreams? Tune in to Empirical Investing Radio every Thursday afternoon at 2 Pacific, 5 Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Join certified financial planners Ken Smith and Ethan Broga to learn how you can obtain financial success. You'll be entertained while you discover techniques to alleviate your financial concerns. Empirical Investing Radio every Thursday at 2 Pacific, 5 Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Hi, I'm Joe Swedish, CEO of WellPoint. We proudly support the March of Dimes and all they do to reduce the rate of premature birth in the United States. Though premature births have recently declined, still half a million babies are born too soon each year. We're helping the March of Dimes fund cutting-edge research and community programs that help moms and their babies live healthier lives. Please visit MarchofDimes.com and join us in working together for stronger, healthier babies. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Simon Lack. He's a bond expert. He was at J.P. Morgan for many years. His firm is now called SL Advisors. His website, sl-advisors.com, and his book is called Bonds are not forever the crisis facing fixed income investors. Welcome back to the show, Simon. Thank you, Jordan. So you've got a whole chapter on what you call government-controlled investing, and I wanted to see how this is affecting the bond market. I mean, certainly the Federal Reserve has been doing this quantitative easing for about five years now. Uh, they say they're trying to taper and basically get out of that business, but they've expanded their balance sheet dramatically to over $4 trillion. Has this been a, a good experiment, or do you think it would have been better had they not done quantitative easing? I think for the U.S. economy, it's been very successful. And I think it was uh, very unpopular when they started. I think uh, a lot of people were critical of you know, the, the balance sheet ballooning that took place. And I think they deserve, a, you know, they deserve a lot of praise because they took some bold moves. And uh, I think that the economy is at a much better place than it would have otherwise. So uh, kudos to them. I think that was very good. While it's good, 
public policy and good for the economy doesn't mean it's been good for bond investors, but I think it's been, yeah, absolutely it's been successful. Now, how they exit will be a challenge, and I know they'll have spent a lot of time on that as well, and it creates some interesting, uh, you know, some interesting difficulties for the Fed in terms of communicating their policies going forward. But yeah, I would say it's been a, it's been a successful policy. So how do you think the tapering is going to go this year? Will they, in fact, finish quantitative easing altogether by the end of 2014? And how is that going to affect the bond market? You know, the, the, the correct exit is, I think, a, a, a steady one. And so something that's fairly predictable. So, you know, roughly every six weeks, you know, they, they take another $10 billion off of what they're doing. And, yeah, I think they will. I think they will do that. You know, the Fed is so open compared with what they were like, you know, 10 years or 15 years ago. I mean, pe- there'll be people maybe on listening to this show old enough to remember when, you know, there were people called Fed Watchers and the Federal Reserve would do things called open market operations. And we'd try and figure out what the Fed's intentions were because they wouldn't actually come out and tell us. And now they're unbelievably open. They'll even tell you where they think short-term interest rates will be at the end of this year, next year, 2016, over the long run. It doesn't mean that they'll be right. But it is their forecast, you know, it's more important than my forecast or yours because they're in a position to make it come true. So they're incredibly open and transparent about what they're doing. At the end of the day, they're making economic forecasts just like the rest of us and then, you know, trying to steer monetary policy uh, off the back of that. But I think that's what they'll do. Um, you know, their balance sheet will be continuing to grow and, until, they, until they finish that and probably they will just allow those securities to mature and, and, and bring that balance sheet down over really quite a, a considerable period of time. So they don't have to sell those bonds back? They don't have to find buyers for $4 trillion of bonds, is what you're saying? I, I, no. I, I'd be very surprised if they do that. I, you know, I, I think that they'd only be sell as if we were in some period of time when there was just sort of extraordinary demand for bonds and... Uh, you know, and it made sense for them to sell them. But, you know, in an instance like that, there'd probably be a lot of economic stress as well. So, I, you know, I don't think that they will. I think they'll basically let them run off. The, the you challenge tra- will be, as they step away as a buyer, when those bonds mature and they have to be, you know, reissued by, you know, by the Treasury or the government agencies, the mortgage agencies, who will the new buyer be? That will be the, the bigger challenge, but that'll be something that will play out over a number of years. How about foreign investors who've been big buyers of treasuries, the Japanese, the Chinese, the Saudis, and so on? They seem to have been pulling back from this to some extent. Is that a, a worry that there'll be, uh, if, if the Fed's getting out of that business and the big foreign buyers, who, who are going to be the next marginal buyers of bonds? Well, it is a worry. Uh, but I think that if interest rates were to move up too quickly because of that, I think the Fed would slow down their tapering. I think they might even uh, begin buying again because I think that they'd be concerned about the economy's ability to withstand sharply rising interest rates. So I think the government's going to be involved in buying bonds for a long time um, and holding bonds for a long time, even while they're reducing tapering. I think that... Uh, you know, they're always, let's just suppose, for example, that, you know, China decided that they wanted to sell, you know, 100 billion bonds, so, you know, a little under 10% of what they own. Um, and I don't think they would, but I also think that if they were, the Federal Reserve would be in there buying to stabilize the market because interest rates were obviously such an important component in terms of economic growth and stability. So 
you know, the government controls interest rates to a large degree, and I think they're going to, you know, continue their involvement for a long time to come. Now, in general, in this chapter, you talk about the politicization of the bond market. Um, and, I mean, we still are having deficits of uh, $500 billion or so, um, even though officially inflation is low. You're saying basically we're monetizing the debt. That's the way it's good, because we're not going to reduce the debt. We just may be adding to it at a slower pace. Is that what you're saying? I, I think that's going to be how that'll play out. And I think the the issue there is, and it may be even a sort of a weakness with democracies, but... You know, this generation, the baby boomers, if you like, is very comfortable in spending money and leaving it to the next generation to pay that back. And in a democracy, you know, we all make sacrifices for our kids, but as a, as a society, we're unwilling to make sacrifices for the next generation. And there's no sort of, you know, there's no process to ensure that that happens. So, you know, we have the situation we have with debt because it's a democracy, and that's what people vote for. You know, any politician who gets up and says, you know, we need to cut spending or raise taxes, it may sound like a sensible thing to do, but it's not a great way to get elected. And so you have this sort of, really, it's a form of generational theft. I mean, it's the first time, uh, I think, in history that one generation has been able to borrow so much money for consumption, essentially, uh, and then pass on that obligation to the next generation. And, and the sort of thought experiment I often play with is, you know, just suppose that in 25 years' time, you know, there's no money to pay for, you know, increasing education or for healthcare or other things because there's so much debt, there's so much interest to be paid. You know, maybe the next generation will say, well, we, we didn't incur that debt. We didn't get a chance to vote on it. I tell my kids, you know, you should be uh, willing to, you know, cut benefits for retired people in the future because they're the people who voted to have all this debt in the first place. So who knows how it'll play out. It's not a big political issue today, but I do think that it's a huge failing of the democratic process that because we're building the, the up. Money, the money for this is going to older people, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Being, the entitlements is older people for the most part. It's being consumed, and, you know, for hundreds of years of history societies have borrowed and left a debt to the next generation, but it's been either for building infrastructure or for wars. Mm -hmm. And in both of those cases, you can appreciate why the next generation could feel sort of a moral obligation to pay that back. In the case of building infrastructure, the next generation benefits. But today, the next generation has no benefit from all this build-up of debt. It's basically been spent by the, by the generation that decided to incur it. So, you know, there's no bright line that says, okay, you're in the taking generation versus the receiving generation. But I do think that if, you're, if you lend the U.S. government money for 30 years, you're making a bet that that issue is going to resolve itself neatly. And I think that's a bad bet. In summing up, then, in your book, uh, Bonds Are Not Forever, why don't you just kind of sum up the, the current environment for bonds and what people should look for in buying bonds? I mean, I think that uh, if you're going to invest in bonds, you should be very short maturities. You know, don't take a lot of duration risk or time risk because, you know, the future, you might well see inflation tick up uh, you know, in the time ahead. But I, I, I really think that investors should bring their fixed income exposure down as small as possible. I mean, there's some amazing justifications for bonds. There's one very big investment firm, I read a piece of those a few weeks ago, and they said, look, we know the outlook for fixed income is poor, but we still recommend investors hold bonds for diversification. And so you stop and think about that for a minute and say, okay, so in other words, I, I know I'm going to lose money on bonds, 
but somehow the fact that bonds will go up and down differently than stocks is good. If I can lose money unpredictably, that's a good thing. I mean, it's ridiculous. Of course it's not a good <laughs> thing. If you think you're going to lose money in something, don't own it, right? Um, so you know, there's a lot of vested interest that will tell you that you should own fixed income. In fact, the right decision for an investor is to take their fixed income allocation down as close to zero as they really can and to use some combination of equities, cash, and other sort of income-generating strategies along the lines we've discussed uh, to achieve their investment objectives. I think that it's, it's, you know, it's very hard to do that uh, today with bonds. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this hour has been Simon Lack. His book is called Bonds Are Not Forever, The Crisis Facing Fixed Income Investors. Um, his website is sl-advisors.com. Thanks so much for being a guest on The Money Answer Show, Simon. Jordan, thanks very much. I enjoyed it. Thanks again, and we'll be back with another edition of The Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 